I'm Mike Leffer. And I'm Mike Ravenscroft. And you're listening to Extreme Uncertainty, the Agent of Change episode. Mr. Ravenscroft, what do you know about budgeting processes in K through 12 education? <laughs> I don't know much, but I can imagine that it's not at all pretty. Yeah, it definitely isn't, Mike. And uh, school systems struggle to manage shrinking budgets. They have to manage their spend based on need. Uh, it's really hard to handle finances to ensure that children throughout their districts have equal access to educational resources. And it's why I'm excited to announce our guest today is Jess Gartner, CEO and founder of Alaview, an ed fintech company that helps school districts across the country manage, budget, and evaluate spend for over 1 million students. This is an incredible conversation where we talk about Jess's transition from public school teacher to entrepreneur, inequality in the American education system, and diversity in tech. Without further ado, Jess Gartner. Jess, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Excited to have you on Extreme Uncertainty. Thank you for having me. To, to get it kicked off, what is All of You? All of you is an education finance technology company. We are based in Baltimore and we serve the K-12 education industry, primarily through uh, products and services related to budgeting and financial management. And we put a big focus on resource equity and resource strategy in all of the work that we do with school districts. Awesome. So it, it, it um, I guess to sum it up, I think it's on your website. It's all about uh, budgeting, managing and evaluating K through 12 spend. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so digging in a little bit deeper, you know, what, what's the, the problem that you're trying to solve? I think you mentioned there's an uh, achievement gap versus a resource gap. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So we spend over $700 billion a year on K-12 public education. And there's a bit of a black box in terms of how that money is actually spent, particularly when it comes down to how those dollars actually reach individual students at school and acknowledging that the U.S. does not have a homogenous population, and most school districts are do not have homogenous student populations. And increasingly, research has shown that students have very different needs at school, and based on the profile of those needs, require different levels of resources. So, for example, there are certain special ed students who require one-on-one -on -one instruction and private transportation to school. So the costs of educating that student look very different from a student who does not have exceptional needs or a um, education plan that requires certain legal and educational services. So when we look at the history of education funding in this country, uh, it's been highly correlated to property wealth and, and uh, uh, property tax values. 
And um, for, for reasons that we won't go too deep into today, but I can certainly point you to some resources, um, those wealth structures are deeply inequitable. If we look at the history of property ownership in the US, um, you know, going all the way back to the 1600s and the way that that property uh, was um, uh, usurped from Native American and indigenous populations to the history of slavery and Jim Crow laws and segregation and discrimination policies um, and a lot of structural racism in terms of housing ownership that goes deep into the 70s and 80s. So there, there's some deep, deeply inequitable structures as it relates to property wealth and how those dollars have historically been allocated to schools and school districts. And as a result, we have um, we have some very significant resource gaps from one school to another and one district to another across race and class lines in this country. And we see that poor students and black and Hispanic students routinely get fewer resources at school than their whiter and wealthier counterparts. So I came into this work because I was a former city schools teacher in Baltimore City, and I could see firsthand that from one school to another and from one community to another, the available resources at school looked very different. And I wanted to understand more about that and more about the administration of budgets and the allocation of dollars. And the more I dug into that problem, the more I realized there was a lot of opportunity for innovation in that space and a lot of opportunity to bring modern web-based tools to help education administrators and, Amer and educators on the ground um, really figure out the most strategic and equitable use of dollars and resources. So there's a there's a lot in there, and, and uh, we definitely want to go back to your, your time as a teacher um, and sort of how that informed your understanding of the problem. But to sort of dive a little bit more into the weeds, um, for uh, K-12 uh, administrators, say, um, you, you know, before your platform, what, what were they actually using to solve this problem? Was it a, was it a problem of sort of, um, you know, Excel spreadsheets and uh, sort of a, a hack together kind of solution? Or is it just that um, this market was under underappreciated, underdeveloped for that, you know, companies were sort of focusing on the wrong kinds of things and not helping educators in the way they needed to be helped? Yeah, so there's there's sort of a binary structure there for the status quo. I'd say the majority of the of the challenges that we're tackling from a workload workflow standpoint have historically been done on Excel spreadsheets. Um, and for lots of reasons, those can become really unwieldy and error prone when you're handling the volume of data and and very complex workflow tasks that we're that we're talking about. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's some really heavy enterprise resource planning or ERP systems from the corporate world that have been somewhat maladapted for the K-12 space. So that's your Oracles and SAP and PeopleSoft. And these are really heavy solutions. And the the good part about those solutions is that, you know, if you invest uh, enough millions of dollars into them, you can customize them to do pretty much whatever you want. But the the other side of that story is that they're very expensive to update and maintain. They can be very unwieldy and not very user friendly for someone who might be at a school or classroom level. Um, and they're often 
just an ill-fitting solution for the needs of K-12. So it's you have this uh, round peg, square hole problem with these very heavy, expensive solutions. So jumping back, you mentioned that you were um, a, a Baltimore City public school teacher, and I saw you, you wrote a Medium piece about how can you be a CEO when you're just a teacher? It was a, a common question. It, tell me, or tell us about your experience with that and what it was like transitioning from one to the other. Yeah, the transition was a rough one to start. Um, you know, I I did not have a lot of boxes checked for what VCs and investors typically pattern match for. Um, I am a woman. I was a solo founder. I was a non-technical founder. I was a first-time founder. Um, I, I And I did not have explicit experience on the finance side of the house to start with. So I really did not have a lot of the things that um, a, a traditional investor in the ed tech space was looking for. And that was that was a steep hill to climb, especially in those early years. And I really had to scratch and claw my way through that transition and prove some credibility over time. And it, and it was a slow process. And I I really and truly did it five and ten thousand dollars at a time. So, you know, I, I like to say some people live paycheck to paycheck and we lived investor check to investor check for probably the first three years of our existence, um, which was tough because I spent the vast majority of my time fundraising and that can be a really distracting and demoralizing process. Um, But we did what we had to do to to make it through the next day, week, month, year. And um, slowly but surely we we made some traction and, and we got some proof points and we were able to prove ourselves over time. Um, but I say that, uh, you know, I, I got that question a lot and I, I hate that question because one, I feel like it unintentionally really denigrates teachers. I think teachers get a really bad rap from a professionalism standpoint in this country and we really undervalue their intelligence and their ability to organize people and ideas. And a big part of my my talking about that is to say, you, you know, you're asking this question the wrong way, because really it was all of the skills that I learned in the classroom that have helped me to organize people around this mission and get them excited and engaged in something that's really complex. I mean, at its core, a lot of what teaching does is some of the most difficult work of trying to distill very complex concepts into a way that uh, is easy to understand for a broad audience. and that that skill has come into play in so many ways. Um, for one, you know, I think about you got to get a seventh grader excited about the history of the Roman Empire, right? And a big part of my job has been making this seemingly very unsexy work of financial data fun and exciting and innovative, 
both for attracting talent to the company for the team from a hiring and recruitment standpoint to getting investors excited about it to getting customers and and partners excited about it and I also consider a lot of the advocacy work that we do um, with the general public a really important part of our work. I think that our public is really grossly underinformed about so much of how education finance works. And to be informed citizens and to uh, participate fully in public institutions, this is information that the general public really needs to know and understand. And I absolutely think that that is doable if you put concepts in easy to understand formats. Does uh, TikTok? Yes, indeed. That is where my Edfin tags come in. They're, they're fantastic. If you haven't checked them out yet, we'll, um, we'll plug them in the show notes and you can see them on, uh, on Jess's Twitter and TikTok. Yeah, that's a great example. We um, we started doing these this fall, largely because uh, I'm not going to conferences as much. And so I was looking for some new avenues to do some education and thought leadership around this work. And I got this idea, you know, I, th- I think I saw a couple of, uh, of TikToks that were used for educational purposes. And I was like, gosh, that's such a fun and engaging format and I could just take a concept a week and it's a really interesting format for creativity because there's a lot of constraint with it. You've got 60 seconds and you've got to do something that is visually engaging and you really have to have the right bite size of information. You can't do too much, but you've got to make it engaging. And so we've just been picking a topic per week, whether it's the history of federal education funding or how state funding formulas work. And I do 50 to 60 seconds and we we put them out there in the universe and hope that people learn a little bit about how education funding works. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's more informative than 95% of what's otherwise on TikTok. I'm just going (laughs) to, having not seen any of them, I just want to go out on a limb and say that. So Jess, uh, there, there's a lot that you um, that you uh, uh, brought up there in in uh, in the last couple minutes, and I wanted to to sort of um, go back a, a little bit and just focus on sort of this point of departure. Um, so you know, you're you graduate in 2009 um, around the same time I graduated, actually. So you know, very um, interesting time to graduate into a recession and um, you know all the associated sort of uh, um, uh, things that are going on with that. Um, you become a teacher um, and you teach in uh, was it Baltimore City Schools? For two years? Yes, for three years. For three years. Um, so wh- at what point did you decide that there was maybe something that you wanted to do as it relates to, um, you know, education finance from a startup perspective? You know, you didn't immediately do it. You, you had a couple of jobs in the interim, but um, it seems as though there's a short enough period of time there that you were probably thinking about it when you were a teacher. Um, I, I would love for you to just sort of elaborate on what that kind of like formulation process was for you and then what the jumping off point was? Yeah, it was a really slow burn. Um, When I first moved to Baltimore, I was pretty adrift my first year here. For one, um, first year teaching is really hard. It's, It's really, really hard. There's no challenge like it. And 
So I, I found myself a year in living in the city and hadn't really found a community here. And I felt like I needed to try to find my community or maybe leave and do something else. Um, and for those of us who have moved to Baltimore as adults, I think you have probably experienced that Baltimore can be a tough city to get to know. It's it's a it has a really tough exterior and it can be a little tough to find your place here. So I just sort of dove in and did this networking blitz. And part of that was through Twitter. I I was on Twitter and I was just trying to figure out who's in Baltimore, what are they doing, what's interesting. And there's a little bit of serendipity at play here because it just so happened that as I was doing this, Baltimore was doing this sort of innovation renaissance blitz where they were doing all of these conferences and organizing around innovation and technology. And I think probably every week I was at some sort of verb Baltimore, like create Baltimore, start Baltimore, ignite Baltimore, you name it. Baltimore. And what's fascinating is that I met so many people during probably a three to six month blitz of networking that have become really, really critical pieces of this whole puzzle and journey for the next 10 years. I mean, if if I look back and and connect all the dots of the people that I met during that time, it's it's really incredible. And that was the that was the time in my life where I started thinking about technology as an agent of change. Uh, originally in my academic career, I was really interested in public policy and I thought I would go into education policy as a long-term career path. The more I spent with technologists and people who worked in the technology space, I really felt like they were my kind of people. And I, I found a real community there and a real eagerness and willingness to solve problems and figure out how to scale solutions. And that was so interesting and appealing to me. And I simultaneously started figuring out how to leverage technology solutions to do my job better. So I was really immersed in the in the ed tech community and I, I was eagerly testing and vetting all sorts of new tools in my classroom, everything from lesson planning to grading to um, you know presentation tools. And I thought it was so powerful that as an individual teacher, I could find these solutions, I could make my job better, I could make my lessons better, I could make things more engaging and interesting for my students. And something clicked for me that that was a really interesting lever for change, especially when a lot of my other life as a teacher felt very bureaucratic. And that was largely what burned me out and drove me out of the system. And so I knew that I wanted to stay in the education space. I wanted to do something that had a, a, a really big lever for change at scale. And the more I thought about what problem was really interesting to me, 
I kept coming back to this resource issue. And I kept coming back to this idea that all that stuff that I found, I bought myself. I didn't have a budget as a teacher. I paid for it out of my own pocket, whether it was copy paper or a grading tool or a, an online uh, grade book, whatever it was, most of it I was buying myself. And I, so I just kept coming back to this issue of resource equity from different angles over and over and over again. And I kind of went down this rabbit hole and the more I learned about it, the more it just seemed like total blue ocean of opportunity and so much space to innovate and um, and create efficiencies. So, um, so, so going forward, then you uh, you decide that this is an area that you're particularly interested in. Um, how do you form a company around that? I think I Googled that on my first day of fun employment, actually. <laughs> that should tell you something about where I started. I, I truly took this running leap off a cliff, um, much to the consternation of my parents. This was pre-Obamacare, so they were very concerned about how I was going to have health care. Um, but I was 25, so I, you know felt like nothing was going to happen to me. Um, I took this running leap and I just completely jumped into this period of learning and discovery and research. I mean, I am a nerd at my core and I truly love learning and I love uh, I love figuring things out. And so I kind of approached it very academically, like it was a research project. And I just jumped in and talked to every person who would give me the time of day. I, I mean, I, I must have had hundreds and hundreds of meetings those first few months. And I just did a lot of listening and a lot of note taking and a lot of sketching. And, um, the pieces started to come together in my brain. And, and I had this sort of dual challenge because I had two learning curves that I had to navigate. I had the learning curve of really getting into the weeds of the financial data pieces and the user experience components. But I also had this learning curve of what does it mean to start a company and the legal components of that and the... Uh, the team and management components of that and the fundraising components of that. So I'm simultaneously doing this like crash course MBA um, while while figuring out all of the the components of the the user research that we had to do. And that was basically how I spent the first six to nine months was just a lot of listening and learning and working my like six part-time jobs on the side so I could eat. <laughs> so at what point did you start to bring people into your, um, uh, uh, into your, into your orbit to help build the venture? Yeah, the first year I primarily worked with consultants, um, mostly because I did not have any funding to actually hire someone full-time. I wasn't paying myself yet. And 
With consultants, I was able to do these bite-sized chunks of work, right? I could say like, well, I got $4,000 in the bank right now, so you can do $4,000 worth of work on this, like get me a $4,000 scope and we'll make some progress. And then after about a year of fundraising, I finally had enough runway that I felt comfortable making some hires. So in 2014, we brought on our first few full-time hires and uh, and started to grow things from there. And a lot of those folks are, are still with me today, which is really great. That's awesome. Um, and there's two questions I want to ask. It's the first one. What's it like being a solo founder? Well, I would say while legally I am a solo founder, um, and for that first year I certainly was, because I had these early employees who have grown with me for so much, I, I don't really feel like a solo founder if I look back on the entire journey, there are certainly very key people on the team who I consider co-founders in that they have shared the, the good and the bad, and especially the bad. <laughs> you know, I think being a founder can be really, really lonely. And I am lucky enough to work with several people that have been by my side throughout this whole journey and I couldn't I couldn't have done it without them and I think that is a, a key part of how we've gotten to this point and for all the other founders out there how do you um, how do you cope or how do you recommend other founders uh, work at the loneliness of it are there support groups or what what's helped you being friends with other founders is really important because it is it is a journey like nothing else that I've experienced and nothing else that I've been able to find this kind of resonance with other other career paths. There really are some unique challenges to it that in my experience only other founders understand. And sometimes you just have to have really tough conversations and be able to vent and like kick and scream and, you know, shake your fists at the sky. And you want to do that with somebody who understands what you're going through and what you're experiencing. And so fellow founders have been a huge, huge resource. I mean, partly because at, at the core starting companies have a lot in common across industries and stages. You know, you could find 10 founders who are at seed stages in 10 different industries, and they're going to be dealing with very similar problems. And that's the same is true for, you know, if you're 10 people, 20 people, 50 people. So finding people who are both at the same stage with you and a little bit of ahead of you is great. And then it's great to um, also befriend folks who are a few steps behind you because then you can pay it forward and be like, ah, I remember this problem. <laughs> I had that problem in 2014 and here's what you need to be thinking about. So I think it, it really 
it really is this nice chain of like, you take a hand up and then you extend that hand back to somebody else and, and you keep the flow of advice going. And um, it's also, there's a lot of comfort in just knowing I am not the first person to have this problem. I am not the first person to experience these feelings. You know, I think every time I have felt like I have had a, a uniquely difficult situation inevitably you get in a room of entrepreneurs and five of them are like oh yeah the exact same thing happened to me so there's a lot of camaraderie there and a lot of empathy and i think it's just an incredibly important part of the emotional health of of this whole experience yeah that's fantastic um and and when you're going through this process one thing you mentioned earlier is you're you're also a woman in tech. Obviously, tech's a white male-dominated industry, which is super unfortunate. What what was that like for you? And what is that experience? I'm sure it's continuing today. You know, I always think I wish I could like hop into an alternate universe and compare what this would have been like if I had if I had done this as a as a man. Um, but of course I, I can't do that. So I think the challenging part is that it's really difficult to isolate what unique challenges either stem from or are exacerbated by my gender and the judgments or discriminations that come with that and what parts are just the difficulty of building a company. It's so hard to parse that out and it can make you crazy. I mean, it's totally crazy making because I mean, I've had, you know, individual conversations where I sit back and I'm like, what part of that was gendered and what part of that was normal? And it's really, it's, it's a really emotionally tough thing to sort out. Um, I mean, I certainly there are things where I've had very explicitly gendered experiences and even instances where I've had a a male colleague refer me to talk to somebody and had a very, very different type of interaction with them than they anticipated I would have. So it's it's very tough to figure out on any one indicator what part of that experience is due to my gender and it can totally make you nuts if you think too long and hard about it but I will say on the whole I know there are experiences I'm having that are unique from my male colleagues but that being said I am also a white woman and that comes with a lot of privilege that my that my fellow founders who are black and hispanic are dealing with, and they're dealing with a whole different level of scrutiny and discrimination. So everybody's having these different experiences. Ultimately, I think the the technology industry and the venture industry in general will be so much stronger when we have more diverse investors for so many reasons, and not the least of which is that um, we will have different types of interactions. And I think some of that, the toxic masculinity elements of fundraising will hopefully be mitigated with a more diverse uh, investment force. 
Well, so to that to that point, um, what advice do you have for female founders who are, <clears throat> whether or not they're you know looking to raise capital or just starting a business? Um, you know, what <clears throat> what advice do you have um, to uh, that, that you think might you know help them through that process? Eventually, persistence and excellence wins. And I, I have actually done some rough math on this because I am a data nerd. And so I've done things like compare numbers of meetings and numbers of term sheets and amounts of capital that I've had to have or that I've received with some of my peers. And I genuinely think you have to work 50 to 100 times harder or be 50 to 100 times better on many indicators just in a sheer numbers component. And that is, that's an enormous ratio. And it really can feel insurmountable on a lot of days and it can feel deeply unfair and unjust. And I really hope that we get to a point that you do not need to be 50 to 100 times as good or even 10 times as good to access the same amount of capital um, and that it won't take you 10 or 50 times as long to access that capital. I think the world is better if we if we equalize access to that type of capital and innovation. Um, but in the meantime, we do have to work that hard. We do have to be that good and we can mitigate some of those challenges by helping each other out. So, uh, my, my coworkers tease me about this, but it is very hard for me to turn down a meeting request from a fellow female founder, um, because I know how much it can help to get really good advice from someone who's just a couple steps ahead of you and any leg up that I can give other female founders who are starting out, I, I want them to have that. And unfortunately, some of this is just a numbers game. I mean, even in the most recent statistics, women are only receiving 2% of venture capital. That is a lot fewer female founders to be able to give the kind of advice or mentorship that you would need to folks coming up in the ranks. So this is where men need to be a critical part of this equation because there's not enough venture-backed female founders to go around to expand that pool. So I think men can be really helpful with targeted capital and mentorship and sponsorship. I think sponsorship is something that is not talked about enough and is incredibly valuable. And what I mean by that is speaking highly of women and people of color who are founders to your male and white peers. Because as unfortunate as it is, white men speaking to each other highly of us does more than us advocating for ourselves in many scenarios. 
And I can point to specific examples where I pitched investors who turned me down until another white male investor told them to invest in me and spoke so highly of me that they could not turn the investment down. That is powerful. That is helping me access real capital in a more expedient way. And frankly, is just as if not more valuable than reviewing my pitch deck. You are helping me access networks and capital that I have not been able to access on my own. So Jess, so at this point, the company's grown significantly in the last couple of years, a um, lot bigger than when you first started out. You have uh, close to 50 employees now? So what are the challenges of, of scaling a team and, and keeping your culture intact, you know, given that you have sort of come a long way in terms of, you know, the, the customer base you serve and you're, you're operating at a bigger scale than you were. Just curious what your advice is to founders who are, um, you know, getting, getting ready to, to grow their businesses. It's, it's hard to keep a culture together as you scale. It's hard to keep a team together. What, what, are, your, what are some of the challenges that you guys face and what are your um, recommendations there? I think getting very clear on what you want your culture to be and what your guiding principles and mindsets are very early is really paramount here. Um, you have to be intentional about culture. And that means you have to be intentional about who you let in the company. So one of the things that we started doing quite early on is a culture screen. And that meant that we had to sit down and say, what are the, the mindsets that we think make an AlloView employee successful? And so we have five mindsets that we've identified. And we also have some core values around things like diversity, equity, and inclusion that are that are very important for every employee in AlloView to have. And we explicitly screen for those things and ask explicit questions about those mindsets and values as the first step of our interview process. And if you fail the culture screen, it does not matter how brilliant you are or how amazingly you can write code or write a blog post, you do not proceed in the process. And we haven't always gotten it right, but on the whole, it's it's been refined over the years. And I think it has really helped us retain a lot of the founding culture and spirit of the company. Um, beyond that, the founder and or CEO, the, the executive team, has to be deeply invested in the culture of the company. And you have to be deeply invested in what the HR structure looks like. And that's something that I have not always gotten right. There are there are aspects of our of our culture that I wish I had been more involved with and more diligent about early on and you learn some lessons and then you can dig in deeper. Um, but I think really being intentional about it is, it, it's absolutely essential. It, I mean, it doesn't just happen. You don't just get a good culture by accident. You have to invest a lot of time and sometimes money into 
getting the company culture that you want. Yeah, hugely important. Um, looking back, is there anything you would do differently that maybe you, you know, you've learned along the way? Oh, just one thing. <laughs> oh boy. Um, this is such a hard question because, you know, founders are sort of stubborn borderline narcissists to begin with, right? I mean, like you have to be a little bit nuts to quit your job and think you can go change the world with like a piece of software. Um, and so you know, by nature, they they think they can do things in their own unique way. And this is a bit of a double-edged sword with growing a company because you need some of that attitude to create products that turn an industry on its head. But there are also lots of things, as I mentioned earlier, that are just true for every company. So all this to say... I think if someone had handed me a playbook and said, you just do everything in this book and you're going to have a great culture and a great product and a great sales machine, I would have been like, mm, okay, we'll see. Like, I'm going to try, I'm going to try some things my own way. Um, and I think there are just some things where you have to learn the lessons for yourselves. Like they can't really be, they can't be explained to you. I think there are certain things that you just kind of have to take your licks and and learn for yourself why certain things are the way they are and why you know you shouldn't necessarily reinvent the way to pay people or hire people or title people you know some of those structures are there for a reason um, however one of the things that I think I would approach differently is that I, I really underestimated how insidious white supremacy is in, cor in corporate culture and the long, long, long tail of it in just every aspect of how we work and operate companies. And this has been an area where our leadership team has been doing a lot more focused work, even though DEI has been a core value for us for a long time, where we're digging deeper than we ever have to really question some of the structures that I think a lot of people take for granted in a company and questioning how we can dismantle some of these systems that can really limit advancement of women and people of color and how we can question some of the power structures and some of the assumptions of corporate culture that are really exploitative. Uh, I am constantly shocked and disappointed to uncover endlessly new ways that our labor laws and healthcare systems are, do not include all of our employees. Um, and so, you know, I just, I just spent several weeks digging into some 
aspects of our healthcare plan that were really exclusionary to some of our employees who are trying to become parents. And so there's there's a really long tail to these things and it's one of these it's one of these challenges where like the harder you look the more you find and I wish that I had I wish that I had started questioning some of these things even earlier. I think we've been we've been really mindful about some processes and some components of our culture and making things diverse and inclusive. And I think there's a lot of areas where we can still do a lot better. And I think that's going to be a continuous process and opportunity for growth for us all. Yeah. And uh, it's wild. And it's really unfortunate that as a, a privileged white male investor, it's, it's not something I inherently have to think about, but it's something we should. Well, I, I would encourage you to think about it, Mike, because I think if you are going to be in the investment space, I think one one area where we can where we can really do a better job here is that investors can help ensure that founders are thinking about these things. I mean, it's this is something that was important to me early on, but I think that investors can really set themselves apart by creating an environment in their portfolio that strongly advocates for DEI practices and supports entrepreneurs in making really tough decisions and thinking about really tough things and acknowledging the very real resource trade-offs of prioritizing things like that in an organization. It's, um, it's an interesting conversation and we don't have to dig too into it now when you've got um, founders who believe they're sort of artificially resource constrained where they can't execute upon a DEI plan because they don't uh, understand why it should be prioritized. And those are easy conversations for us as investors to have to enlighten them as to why it actually makes their company a whole heck of a lot better. Uh, so you're, you're dead on. Yeah. Um, last Last question, because I know we're running short on time, and I always want to ask this one. What's your favorite book or podcast and why? A book that I love to recommend is Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets. She is a former clinical psychologist and professional poker player, and she wrote this amazing book that essentially applies poker player psychology to decision making. And it was one of the most transformative books I've read just in terms of how I approach decision making and risk analysis and uh, and making tough choices. And she actually just came out with a brand new book called How to Decide, which I have I have not read yet, but it is it is at the top of my list. So that one may become my new one to recommend. But Thinking in Bets, I absolutely recommend. And then my favorite podcast is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, 
Which is somewhat hilarious because I am the absolute worst at pop culture. Like, I have seen, like, five movies in my entire life, and I don't watch very much TV, so I rarely know what they are talking about, but I just find the dynamic of the hosts to be very entertaining to listen to, and they also just have very astonishingly good vocabularies and I love listening to the words that they use which again super super nerdy but so that is one of my favorites um I never know what they're talking about but I love how they talk about it and um the other one I would recommend is actually a local podcast um Jodi Hume um and her and her uh business partner Elliot uh host a podcast so called so here's my story and they take these narrative approaches to solving problems in business, and it's very entertaining. Well, Jess, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was a fantastic conversation, really interesting, and uh, best of luck with, with everything you guys are building and all of you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Jess Gartner, CEO and founder of Alloview. Here's to making the world a better place through technology. I love her. Um, her story, um, going from public school teacher to entrepreneur, it's not one you hear every day. Um, and I also just love the idea of using tech as a lever for change um, at scale. It's really inspiring. Yeah, certainly better than the quagmire of politics in this country right now. So thanks to Jess and her team at Alloview. You can check out all the incredible work they are doing at Alloview.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at Alloview Balance. Our episode was edited by Mixmaster Mike. Our music is by Reactive Productions, and our logo is by Priya Arunashal. You can follow us on Twitter at extreme underscore pod. And as always, embrace the uncertainty. Now more than ever. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>